We are in the book of Nehemiah. Those of you not are newer to Scripture, Nehemiah is in, near the front of the Bible. Uh, if you find it among the historical books of, of uh, Chronicles and Kings, and after Ezra, you'll find Nehemiah. And today we're in chapter 10, where actually Nehemiah and the people of God have been gathered together worshiping for a few weeks, according to our text in Nehemiah 8 through 10. And here we find them doing an unusual thing of signing their names to a covenant. And we're going to start with verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the people of the land, lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, uh, the Lord our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell... We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. We'll stop there. And may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I want to start today with a, in our time in the word with a question for you. And uh, don't worry, there will be no grading in this question. Do you know who the following people are? I have some names for you to consider. Do you know the names Benjamin Rush, Robert Treat Payne, Josiah Bartlett, Stephen Hopkins, William Floyd, George Walton, George Wythe? Thomas Lynch, Jr., John Witherspoon, William Williams, Samuel Chase, William Hooper, Joseph Hughes, and John Penn. Do any of those names ring a bell to you? Do they stand out to you in any way? These, if you haven't already figured out, you got it, <laughs> are the names of uh, really a sample of the names of real men from every one of the 13 colonies who signed 
the Declaration of Independence in 1776. The last three I mentioned, Hooper, Hughes, and Penn, were from North Carolina in particular. All of these were men of influence and of means, and they helped lead the colony into a new season of change by signing the Declaration of Independence. But not only did that new season of change happen for them, but it happened, or really even us living in the wake of that extraordinary moment, but it really changed their lives as well when they signed the Declaration. Of course, we know the stories of guys like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and even us, uh, John Adams, who went on to fame and further fortune as, as signers. However, there were many who also put their own lives in jeopardy. In fact, I would submit to you that when these guys signed the Declaration of Independence, as Ben Franklin later noted, they knew they were signing the death warrant. Five of the 56 men who signed the Declaration were captured by the British and were tortured. Twelve of them had their homes ransacked and burned to the ground. One lost an entire large business and died at the end of his life with nothing. Nine fought and died from wounds or hardships as a result of the war. And I might even note that one of them, John Witherspoon, was a Presbyterian pastor who was president of a little college called the New Jersey Log College. Of course, most of us now know the name of that as Princeton University. Some like Franklin, did really well, but many more struggled as a result of signing the Declaration of Independence. And they signed it knowing fully well they were separating themselves from King George and from England. They knew they were signing at the risk of losing their lives. But sometimes, you know what? Signing your life away is worth the risk. That's exactly what we find today here in Nehemiah chapter 10, where we find a nation or the remnants of a nation, exiles of a nation, showing up around Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah's life. They were gathering around a rebuilt city of Jerusalem, and in the process, they were signing their life away to the Lord. And they certainly had a reason to sign their life to the Lord. God had shown himself to be extraordinarily powerful in his dealings with them. In Nehemiah 1 through 6, God led Nehemiah from the courts of uh, King Artaxerxes, the leader of the superpower of the world at the time, uh, to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city by first rebuilding the wall. And they rebuilt the wall in a breathtaking 52 days. And they did it despite extraordinary resistance from the outside as well as from the inside of their own people. In chapter 7 and chapters 8, the, the, the exiled Jews started to gather around the city and worship God. And in chapter 8, they come to hear God's word spoken to them. Maybe perhaps it had been the first time in years they had heard it together in an assembly and in chapter 9, as we've been looking at the last few weeks, uh, they not only enjoyed the public reading of Scripture, but some weeks after the reading, the conviction of sin kind of set in among the people of how they had not lived up to the law of God. 
And so the people prayed with honesty, telling on themselves in confession regarding their idolatry and the ways they had run from God for years and years in a cycle that had gone on and again with God's people. And the amazing piece of that story is that they kept coming back to how God kept engaging them and coming after them and pursuing them with grace and with forgiveness through the coming Savior, His Christ. So we find ourselves at this point of the book and we have to ask, what is all this prayer and worship and and, um, hearing of the reading of the Word, what is all this about in our text? Well, the key comes in verse 38 at the end of 9. Look with me at that particular verse here in our text. And this is what it says, because of all this... We make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Here's what's going on in these chapters. Here's what they're doing. They were re-engaging and renewing their covenant with God as a people, even as individuals. Now, you should know this happens throughout Scripture again and again where God's people wander away and God brings them back and saves them. And as a result, they renew their relationship with God. The book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, is an actual example of that, how uh, they, uh, they re-engage God after wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. They re-engage in a unique way and reaffirm their covenant with Him. Same happens in Joshua. In Judges, in other places, there is this covenant renewal that goes on again and again. Now, as sure as I talk about the language of covenant, many of us might say, what in the world is he talking about? That is not a word we use that often in our day. But covenant is fairly simple to understand. In our day, when we are in a connected relationship with someone, say in like marriage, or connected to someone in business, or close friendship, even family, we say, I'm in a close, committed relationship with said person. Now, in the Old Testament, they wouldn't say, I'm in a close, committed relationship. What they would say is, I'm in covenant with that person. Covenant, you see, is a binding, serious relationship that is that you agree to be with uh, someone uh, in your life with God as a witness to how you do that relationship. It is a technical way that we might even describe a relationship with God. For example, today in, in kind of evangelical circles, we'll often say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's like, right on, that's good stuff. Yeah. But in Old Testament, even New Testament times, they wouldn't say, I have a personal relationship. They would say, I'm in covenant with God. That's how they describe that personal binding relationship that they have with God. Now, why does that matter here in Nehemiah? Well, in chapter 9, we read about the terrible cycle of how God's people would run from God. And then he would eventually run after them. And how he would save them and pursue them again and again with Savior figures. Well, the beauty of that is that just like with believers, God called Jews to re-engage him in discipleship, in actively following him by faith and in hope and with love. Covenant and the renewing of the covenant is where we respond to God by faith and say, I belong to you in as much as 
you belong to me. So the people of God are re-engaging this relationship with God in a formal, serious matter in our text. And how do, what's this got to do with us? Well, this is our story individually. Uh, and this is what happens to us even in the church today, corporately. We go through cycles of belief and unbelief, don't we? I mean, if any Christian is serious about following Jesus for any length of time, you know that sometimes you're engaged with Jesus and sometimes not so much. We find our hearts wandering from God and we wonder what's going on in our relationship. But here's the great news. We never lose our salvation in justification in as much as we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. We never lose our salvation. But we do wander and struggle in our sanctification, in our growth, in our relationship with God. And in those moments, God pursues us. See, this is the hard part. We really struggle believing at times as we think God may leave us or we feel disconnected from him. Why would he come after me at all? Well, because he keeps coming after his people again and again is the story of Scripture. He comes after us. Now, granted, he may sometimes stand in our way with trouble, with hardship to get our attention. But nonetheless, he comes our way to engage us with love. Now, this makes sense in our rhythms with Christ. So many times we get really excited about following Christ. Remember the first time you became a Christian in some cases for some of you? It was just like a thrill. You're like, man, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm forgiven. I'm free. I enjoy the blessings of God. But inevitably, the feelings wear off. And we find ourselves in a cycle of being prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But there is where God comes after us. And he calls us in that moment to turn and to pursue him and to re-engage covenant with him and relationship with him. How do you do that? Prayer. Word. You listen to God speak in his word. You actively listen and want to hunger for God to speak to you. And then you speak back in prayer, calling on him to engage you. And when you feel empty, when you feel like you are far from God, don't be a passive consumer and say like a little child, God feed me. Uh, nah, what God wants you to do is start walking. Even if you're limping, pursue him, know him, call on him in your life. Now, let me be clear. Even as you pursue God, sometimes he's quiet, just like he was with God's people at times. And here's why. He wants you to learn to pursue him by faith, not just feeling. Feelings matter. We've talked about that in the past. But sometimes you've got to go with trans pursuing a transcendent God above you, not just an experience of God. That's what he's calling us to in covenant renewal. So, God's people in our text enter into this covenant renewal but notice when our text, what they do next in verse 38, it says, verse 38, they signed, they signed, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document. In other words, they signed their names to this very covenant that they were making with God. They wrote it down in their commitment to God. Now, I didn't read verses 1 through 27 of chapter 10 because it's full of a list of many names that were uh, of those who uh, signed their name to the covenant. 
In fact, there are no less than 83 names here of key leaders and key families who signed the covenant as leaders of God's people. Of course, on the list, Nehemiah is first in verse 1 of chapter 10, along with priests and elders and chiefs of the people. Remember, these were the people overseeing tens of thousands of, of Jews who were flocking to be a part of God's kingdom as it was being renewed in the building of the city and the building of the people. But don't miss this. Nehemiah is in this moment where they are basically signing their declaration of independence. A declaration that will have all far-reaching effects for them in their lives. It was, in here in Nehemiah 10, a weighty moment where they were putting their lives on the line, signing this document. And why were they putting their lives on the line? Because they were lining themselves with God alone as their Lord. <laughs> now, we live in a culture where it's like, okay, yeah, I follow Jesus, but on the backside, we got the and. And I follow culture's pop ways of handling things. And I handle this. And I handle that. And these are my various gods I bow to. But when you sign up for covenant with God, you sign up to make Him God alone. You, by faith, embrace Him as your only true Savior. Even a Savior above yourself. In that time, these folks who are signing this document in our text, they were saying, we are putting away the religions that surround us, that are among us, and we're following God alone as our Lord and Savior. And so then, as they do this, what we find is they are actually separating themselves to become a peculiar people. Look at verse 28 with me. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers and singers... The temple servants and all who had separated themselves from the people of the lands of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who had knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. This is big stuff, a big moment for these people. And really, there are three basic things that highlight how the people of God here are signing on to be a peculiar people together in following God. And the first is this. Verse 28 says they separated themselves. You see that in our text? And they separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God. In other words, they were disconnecting their value, their sense of right and wrong, their sense of what is true from the mere people of the land, the world... To God's word. That's what they were doing. And in the process, here's the beauty of this. They were distinguishing themselves from other religions and worldviews. They were saying, we are committed to God alone. And we're going to be a holy nation. That's what separation means. We're going to be holy. Set apart in the way we handle life together. And with one another. Now, the question for us in our time is this. What does it mean to separate living in this world where we live now? Does it mean that we act like our fundamentalist brothers and sisters and pull out of the culture, give the stiff arm to all who are around us who aren't believers, and create a counterculture separate from the world? 
The answer would be no to that. Jesus himself prays in John 17 that we are to be in the world and not of it. To be separate as Scripture understands it, even in 2 Corinthians 6, means to actually stay engaged in the world, but be very different in how we handle the things of this world. To be separate means we engage the world living intentionally as Christians in the marketplace, in how we do our jobs. At school, for those of you who are in school, intentionally being Christian where you are. In our sports teams that we're a part of. In our parenting. And for those in school, schools. As uh, how we live our lives, uh, even amongst people. And dare I say, even the civil centers of our society, Town Hall and Indian Trail, Monroe, and all the surrounding communities like Wesley Chapel and Waxhaw, all of these, we are to be distinctly Christian in how we live intentionally. And here's how we do that. This is the real key to a culture that's definitely taken big jumps out of what was traditionally been a Judeo-Christian cultural mindset. To be holy in a peculiar people means we must dis. Oh, excuse me, differentiate ourselves in a winsome way. When abortion comes up, when homosexuality comes up, when euthanasia comes up, we don't respond with angry rants, but we do differentiate ourselves. And this is how you do it. You say, you know, where I come from and my worldview and how I understand life as a Christian, I'm very different in my uh, understanding of this. I disagree, I agree, based on these truths. Now, admittedly, if you differentiate yourself, the world may respond to you with, with, a, with some tolerance in some cases or without it in others. But we have good news in the midst of this. Something to back us up when we differentiate ourselves. It's the second thing in our text that really sets us apart as a peculiar people. It's God's law. In this text, all over the place here, you see uh, Nehemiah and those praying and talking about renewing their relationship with God, referring to God's law as their source of truth. They invoke his statutes. They invoke his laws and his commandments. And here's what that means. You ready? It means they didn't rely on their intuition for truth. They didn't say, what does it matter to me? Uh, What's my reference point of truth? Or even your reference point of truth? They'd said, what's God's reference point of truth on this matter? Not only that, they didn't rely on pop culture's view of truth. Which changes as much as we change, well, our filters in our house for air conditioning and heating. It's always changing. No, when you and I are confronted with an ethical situation, a matter of truth, morality, where someone clearly disagrees with us as Christians and God's law is at stake, we can appeal to one truth, the Word of God. Do you know how freeing that is? With so many opinions out there on how things to be done, so many pundits and their ideas, we have one truth we can bank our life on. And, oh, implementing these truths takes many forms, but the truth is the truth. 
me tell you how this is freeing. When you engage culture, just like these Jews had to do here in the 5th century B.C., when somebody says, this is what's true in our society or in your family or among your friends or at work, and you totally disagree, you know what you can say? Says who? Says who? Says you? Says culture? Says uh, some pundit? Says who? Is our number one question as Christians for the next century and beyond until Jesus comes back. And why does that matter? Because you're going to be faced with all kinds of claims of truth and morality where you have to come to grips with what is true. And starting with says who frees you because as a Christian we can say it is really clear in this part of Scripture, really clear throughout Scripture, this is what is true according to God. That's who says who applies to us. God says. See how freeing that is? I would submit to you, we are ready to, we're about to enter a time where we're going to have to be answering that, uh, asking that question an awful lot in the midst of a growing worldly culture. Third thing is the people of God renewed their relationship with God by committing to following Christ together or following God together. They said, we're going to walk, we're going to observe, we're going to do the law together. And this is key. Because so many times when we seek it to do the law, to actually obey God by ourselves, as kind of the Lone Ranger, the Marlboro Man, I can do it. Our own spiritual Jason Bourne types. I got to tell you, you're not that strong. You can't take on culture by yourself. You can't take on the waves of family and friends who have very different views and lifestyles than you as a Christian. You can't do it. You need community to do it together. That's the beauty of what's going on in this text, is they are committing to a life together of doing things uh, for the Lord and for His kingdom. The implication is this. You and I cannot follow Jesus all by ourselves. We need community help to follow the Lord. Let me speak from experience on this. You know, I can talk myself into any kind of self-righteousness. I've noticed that a little more lately. But it has been my fellow Christians, including my wife, my close friends, my fellow pastors, who often gently, kindly poke at the self-righteousness within. When you sign on with God as one of His, as a follower, He puts you in a family of people to walk with you. And to help you see your need in Christ. Hopefully that's done with kindness and gentleness. But that's what our job is with each other. Is to not only help see the need, but even point each other to Christ. That is, we move from Jesus and me spirituality that's typically American to a Jesus and us spirituality. We're doing this together. So... The people of God committed themselves to the Lord to be holy, to follow his law together, and to seek his face in every circumstance. Now, we could stop right here in the text. And, you know, it would be true and right to live by the principles that we're talking about at this point. However, here's the question. What exactly does it look like to do these things? 
When you say you're going to obey God and follow him by faith in some shape, form, or fashion, not only individually, but as church, what does that look like? Well, our text comes up with no less uh, than five resolutions in this text, what they themselves agreed to do in order to obey God's laws. And for lack of time, I'm going to have to go quickly through these, so hang with me. I'll sum up the five practical resolutions that these folks are are giving in their relationship with God and renewing the covenant. The first is they highlighted that they were, uh, that they had, were committed to believing marriages. Apparently the Israelites in that time uh, had uh, for decades, even hundreds of years, intermingled in unbelieving, believing marriages. And uh, what that means is, is they actually, as believers, would marry unbelievers. When the scriptures from Exodus 34 to, uh, to 1 Corinthians 7, among other places, makes it really clear that when we get married, we only marry in the Lord. I say this to the singles among us, to the young people. I say this to everyone who has kids who are pursuing marriage at some point. This is really important, that we don't compromise on how we carry out marriages. We as Christians, as practicing Christians, only marry in the Lord. We're not to be unequally yoked. Now, let me be clear. Uh, some have in the past uh, suggested this could be a racial thing, that only Jews married Jews. That was a not fact, it wasn't, in fact, the issue. Uh, we believe in interracial marriage. We believe in a whole host of things. You can marry anyone who's in the Lord, especially men and women particularly men and women. Do not compromise this. It really only leads to heartache. Second resolution in our, t- in our text was in verse 31, where they were apparently not practicing weekly Sabbath and even the yearly Sabbath. They were supposed to let the land sit for a whole year and not work the land as farmers. The Jews had apparently forgotten how to rest in the Lord. And so what they did is they engaged in commerce both in working and in buying and selling with people from the land, as they had said in our text. Now, let me be clear. The Sabbath laws have radically changed in our time with Christ coming. And while we do have distinct calls to, uh, excuse me, while we do have sometimes get our ox out of a ditch with our jobs, and while we sometimes... uh, have to do what's necessary to get things accomplished with mercy to people, it would be fair to say that most of us here are uber busy, even on the Lord's Day. Some of us, like yours truly, have a hard time slowing down. But here's what God's Word said. We are called six days of the week to engage, but there is one week where we disengage. Six and one is the rhythm God's given us to be active, but also to pause, be still, and know that he is God. We as Americans who are really busy in suburban life, and I am the chief offender here, have to learn to disengage, to stop, to worship the Lord together as people Breathe and think, what's the big picture of where I've been this last week and beyond and where we're going for eternity with Christ? Are you disengaging 
enough for your soul to rest with Christ as the center. Third, I covered this in chapter 5. Don't have much time to go there. They, they, were take, they were called to take care of the poor by not exacting interest on their loans. Of course, God uh, gave them a really hard time for practicing usury is what that's called. High interest rates. And you can hear more about that in the chapter 5 sermon. Fourth thing in our text, the Jews resolved to change uh, by giving to the house of God, giving to church. In verses 32 through 39, there is this extended call to re-engage the Lord with generosity in tithes and offerings. The leaders agreed to give by leading and giving. They agreed to give the first fruits of their crops and their animals. They agreed to give on a regular basis and to share the burden. This, of course, is a lovely segue for me to give you the sermon on the amount. But I will say this. While I think Redeemer generally is a very generous congregation in time and resources and gifting This is a place where we always have to keep growing because our tendency in suburban life in America is to fall in love with a lifestyle that we long for and choose that over the generosity we give to God's kingdom and to God's church. I feel the tension. You feel it. We have plans on what cars we want, what houses we want, what lifestyle we want, what what we do with our free time. That's okay. But the key thing you have to start with in first fruits, as it says in this text, is what does God want with the resources he's given me because they're his anyway? In other words, we are called as Christians together in the church to share the financial burden of taking care of God's kingdom at Redeemer and beyond with the ways we give to other missions and church plants and mercy needs throughout our community and the world. The reason they're, keep, they're making a big deal about this in the text is because the 80-20 rule was in effect then. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. But now, God is calling the church to 100%. Everybody give to the church. And here's what that means. Let me be perfectly clear. It's not equal giving. It's equal sacrifice. It's giving what God, of what God has given to you. And some people give more here, some give less. It doesn't matter in the end. You tithe and give offerings to the kingdom in generosity because Jesus has been generous to you and to me. That's our call as a church. And that's what they're calling them to. And they're agreeing to and resolving to do in this text. The fifth and final value is they agree in the last verse of our text in chapter 10, not to neglect the kingdom of God. That is, they wouldn't fall in love with their lifestyles more than they'd fall in love with the kingdom because the kingdom's what's lasting, is what's going to be there in the end when we're in heaven with Jesus. These are the five resolutions that are given in our text. These are the five resolutions they sign their life away to in our text by faith. But my question to you is this. Where do you need to make a resolution? You're giving. Do you need to make a resolution in how you slow down and disengage rather than engage? Do you need to make a resolution relative to any, some of the other things that have been mentioned in this text today? What do you need to resolve to do? 
By faith, you need to follow Jesus in that and love him. But now I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow you away. Despite your resolutions, you can't do it. You cannot resolve to follow Jesus and do new obedience on your own without the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And this is the classic error of Christians. I've done it. I'll not do that against you again, Lord. I'll do this for you, Lord. And we don't come through. And you know why? Because we haven't changed from the inside out. The rhythm of our text in Nehemiah 8 through 10 is powerful. They start with hearing God speak through the word to them. And inasmuch as they hear the gospel and even the law calling them to a standard of living that God desires, they became convicted of their sin. And as they became convicted of their sin, they went to God and sought his forgiveness and grace. They came clean with their idols. They came clean with the ways they tried to make sin look good. And the beautiful result of that is that on the other end, after they had received the grace of God, they committed themselves through the power of spirit to new resolutions for Jesus. You can't change the resolutions in this life for God unless God gets a hold of your heart first. That's what's happening in our text. If God gets a hold of our heart for him, it'll change everything. It'll change everything in a powerful way. The truth of the matter is... Christ is the one who keeps the resolutions for us. Christ is the one who we sang about multiple times. In his righteousness, got everything right. In his resolve to obey the Father all the way through his life in this earth and even to death on the cross, he got it right for you and me. It's through Christ's resolutions for us and for the glory of the Father that we have hope. He's the one who died even by giving himself away as the ultimate priest. Guys, that is how we change. Is you don't make resolutions to the law, even the law of God, without letting God get a hold of your heart and the spirit first and changing you from the inside out. The beauty of encountering Christ in that way is you will sign your life away to him. Because what kind of love is this from a God who dies for me? Where are you today with Jesus and your resolutions? We all make resolutions. Where are you with him today? Are you encountering grace in such a way that you want to serve the Lord? Because he's changed your heart. Are you not a believer yet and you're struggling with, I don't know about all this Christianese stuff and this resolution stuff drives me crazy. Well, here's my question to you. When have you ever come through on all of your resolutions? There's one who has come through all the way for you. The gospel calls you and me today to sign our life away by faith in the Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you now and we admit that for much of our Christian walks, Lord, we have tried to sign our life and make resolutions. 
And yet we did it in our own struggle, our own effort. We pray today that you would meet us and that we would encounter grace in those quiet times with you, Lord, where we wrestle with the cross and what you've done for us, Jesus. We pray that the result would be our lives would be transformed in a renewed commitment that comes out of encountering you. Give us grace to know you, Jesus. The knowledge and the understanding of the gospel that Nehemiah 10 talks about so that we become not only new individuals, but a new people in our pursuit of you. Times are changing in our church, Lord. But glory to you. You call us to change too. In Jesus' name, amen.